This is the Super Sports Schools Podcast, bringing you stories of our future stars powered by Spurs Stake Ranchers. One, two, three, go! Hello and welcome back to Super Sports Schools. It's a new year and a new season of the Super Sports Schools Podcast brought to you by Spur. We're starting off with a very topical discussion. Over the break, Saru announced that they're lowering the tackle height in the community game in South Africa to the sternum. To debunk the myths and find out how we've reached this point, Tim and I chat to Professor Ross Tucker, who's one of the world's leading head injury researchers and consults for world rugby. We also explain exactly how these laws are going to be applied in the school game in South Africa. This is the Supersport Schools podcast, and I'm Alex White. When Tim and I had the interview with Professor Ross Tucker, we knew that the lower tackle height was coming in South Africa. In fact, we've known for ages. We just didn't know when. Now we know that it will apply to the community game from this year. New laws have been introduced for both the ball carrier and tackler in South Africa. It's interesting to note that the tackler is more at risk of concussion in general, and their risk is 280% higher when they tackle above the sternum. So we will spend most of this episode discussing how and why this change is happening with the professor. But community games around the world have different implementations of the lower tackle height, and South Africa is one of the last Tier 1 nations to introduce it. So first we're going to understand the new laws. Here is a crash course on the lower tackle height in the South African community game. Let's start with the tackler. For tackles above the shoulder, the standard head contact protocol will continue to be followed. However, referees will be instructed to base their sanctions on lower thresholds of danger, so there will be more cards for tackles above the shoulder line and every tackle starting above the shoulder line will be sanctioned. Additionally, tackles in open play must now be made at the base of the sternum or below. If they are above the base of the sternum and below the line of the shoulders, then they can be penalized for being high. Second and double tacklers are permitted, but they have to follow this law too. Tackle assist players who attempt to rip can continue to do so as long as they don't make head contact or dangerous contact. If they go for a rip and not a tackle, they won't be liable to sanction even if they're making contact above the sternum. Finally, tacklers are discouraged from targeting the knees for their own safety, and they may continue to tackle below the knees, but if they do so, they need to complete a full wrap. An attempted wrap below the knees is not sufficient and will be sanctioned. It must be a completed wrap. These laws come with a set of complementary laws for the ball carrier too. During open play, the ball carrier may brace for contact, but may not run into contact with their body fully bent or horizontal, or with the head lower than the hips, or lead head first into contact. Basically, they must provide physical access for a tackler to make a legal tackle. If they don't, they can be penalized for contributing towards dangerous play. If penalized, referees may describe this action as late and low. There is an exception. The pick and drive in a low body position is still legal. This is because there is a lower concussive risk, as in defense tacklers tend to make an absorbing tackle, which is safe. The cannon arm technique, where one arm is placed on the ground to stabilize the ball carrier, is now illegal. And where before a single lapture was allowed to bind on the ball carrier prior to contact, now no player can bind to the ball carrier 
until contact has been made. If direct head contact occurs, then the standard head contact protocols are followed. But now the ball carrier can be the one at fault. Mitigation will obviously apply if the ball carrier slips or must drop to catch a low pass. Remember, these laws apply for tackles in open play only. When you maul scrum, ruck and have a line-out, you can maul scrum, ruck and have a line-out as before, binding as before. And if both players tried their hardest for a legal tackle to occur, and the tackle that happens is technically illegal but still safe with clear mitigation, referees will play on. To summarize, the tackler must tackle below the base of the sternum. The tackler must complete a wrap, not just attempt one if they tackle below the knees. The ball carrier must provide access for a legal tackle. A latcher is not allowed until contact is made by the ball carrier. And the cannon arm technique is illegal. It will take time, but like many unions around the world, within a season, these laws should become second nature and the game will be a whole lot safer. Russ, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. I think just to start off, if there's anything you'd like to add in terms of an introduction about yourself. No, not particularly. <laughs> I'm a sports scientist by training. Um, I th- was working initially in the university environment until 2015 doing research, which is, yeah, I left that quickly enough. And I was lucky because I got an in at World Rugby and now I manage and do a lot of the research in World Rugby around head injury prevention and concussion management. There's a few other stuff, but I'd say 80% of my time is what causes a concussion and how can we prevent it? And so that's... And, and it's, you know, to its credit, and of course I'm biased, I think the sport is genuinely trying to make evidence-based decisions. So like, okay, let's try and reduce concussion, but let's not guess. Let's figure out why they happen, how to solve them, evaluate, reevaluate, reassess all the time. And so that's why it happens and how it happens. And that's exactly what we want to talk to you about today is concussion. And I think rugby is a natural starting point because there are more concussions in rugby than most sports, any other contact sport. Um, And I think just to start off, we're seeing in the community game around the world, countries are doing this, unions are doing this, they're lowering the tackle height, the the legal tackle height, where it becomes a high tackle from the shoulders down to the sternum or to the waist, depending on which union uh, they are. I want to understand, I think, to just start off, how we got to this point. Yeah, that story really starts back in 2015. When I started with World Rugby, one of the very first things that we said was that we'd done, not enough, but we'd done a lot on recognizing and then managing a concussion. So spotting them and treating them had over the course of four or five years been improved to the point that we were now saying, okay, this is the problem. The next thing you do is you say, well, let's prevent, prevention being better than cure. And so the very first project I remember getting involved in was a, a study where we had video footage of 611 head injuries in the game. We looked at how they happened, when they happened, the circumstances surrounding them. We identified that the tackle was responsible for about three quarters of them. So then you zoom in on the tackle. You say, what is it about the tackle? What is the ball carrier doing? What's the tackler doing? What are the circumstances? The Almost the, the risk factors, you'd call it. And so by 2016, we sort of had an answer to a complex question. And the Answer was high speed, high force. That's not that's not rocket science. I mean, it's pretty obvious. So a dynamic tackle at speed, those are the ones that are going to cause them. But the interesting things were, number one, 
the tackler is more likely to get injured than the ball carrier. So you say, that's a paradox because and a challenge because straight away the guy you're trying to protect is himself from himself <laughs> as opposed to me tackling you. Now it's okay, it's easy. I can just make a law that says don't hit the head. But actually it's my head that's more danger than yours is. So, okay, problem number one. And then the second thing was that the height of the tackle was highly predictive of injury to both players. So I think from the perspective of the ball carrier, that's obvious. You know, if you're carrying the ball and I hit your head, that's really the only way you're getting concussed. Unless as you go to ground, you hit your head on the ground or there's a whiplash or something, fine. But that's, a, that's one in 20, one in 100 even. Really the only danger to you as a ball carrier is I hit your head. So let's cut that out by lowering the height. But then the next question is, where's the tackler most at risk? And it turns out that the tackler is also at risk when they're high because a head-head and a head-shoulder is much more likely to cause an, a, a concussion and a head injury than head-torso, head-hip, head-upper body, uh, lower-upper low, leg, sorry. So what you then say is, well, where would you most like the tackler's head to be? And the answer is below the sternum. And so the, <clears throat> so the drive to lower the height of the tackle actually dates back to 2017, except it was initially attempted in the elite game through sanction. Where we are now, 2023, is in the community game saying, well, we also need to do that. And it's not going to be done through sanction, but in the community game, we can literally lower it and say from now on, this is where you tackle. Why? Because it's safer for both, based on the evidence. Um, we've seen a lot of countries take a different strategies at implementing this. I mean... France and Italy say, you know, below the hip. Others are saying from the sternum. In your professional opinion, pros and cons of, I mean, the strategies being used. Yeah, so, so the okay, so again, and, and I apologize if I repeat, but if I repeat, it's important. Where do you want the tackler's head to be is the safest part. So you can imagine, based on the data, we've got a red zone. Anytime the tackler's head shares airspace with the ball carrier's head, that's the red zone, and that's head, 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 shoulder. So let's draw a line at the sternum and say anything above that line's red zone. Below that line up to the hip is a green zone because, and it makes sense, right? That's the softest part. No matter who you're tackling, it's the soft, soft, it's relative, but it's softer. And then once you go below the hip, you've now got bony hips and potentially knees. So your, your risk goes a little bit back up. So what you end up with is a red zone, green zone, and then and sort of amber or orange zone. It's kind of like Goldilocks. You know, you don't want to be too high. You don't want to be too low. Just right is in the middle. So based on that, you would want the tackler's head to still have access to the torso. And so the, the, the biggest con of going to the waist is that you actually take out the green zone. You leave only the amber zone below. So it's still, it's still safer than allowing high. But it's, in my opinion, this is probably the safest place. Maybe just to address some of the concerns that people naturally are going to have. Uh, I, I think there are two main ones. Uh, f- firstly, there's the myth that it becomes actually more dangerous, which we've you've discussed a bit with that amber. But maybe to dispel that a little bit, and then I'll ask you a bit on the laws. But just to start with people f- thinking that if you're now tackling below the waist, uh, you're having to target knees, things like that, head contacts more likely for the ball carrier. That's a concern that people have raised. What, what, what's the actual info on that? And to be clear, you still could and will. I mean, you could, it's, it's impossible to have no concussions. You, what you're trying to do is have fewer, and, th- and that means you have to understand risk. So two things there. Number one is I realized very early on that people don't really understand risk because we had 
in the elite game, very high-profile coaches saying, I watch a lot of rugby, more than you, which is no doubt true. I mean, you're an rugby, elite rugby coach. We're talking now Six Nations and championship coaches, so the best of the best. And most of the concussions I see are head, head, hip, hip knee, head, knee. Okay, cool, I get that. But that's because most of the tackles are there. So it's kind of like when you want to understand risk, you can't just count. You, you have to also understand how many could have happened relative to how many did happen. Does that make sense? So, for example, do more people – this is sorry for morbid analogy – do more people die in car accidents or motorbikes? Well, cars. But motorbikes are more dangerous. And the reason they're more dangerous is because per 1,000 motorbikes there's one death, whereas per 100,000 cars there might be one death per year. You, you know what I mean? Because there's just more of them. So, I'm, okay, if I'm laboring the point, the point I'm trying to make is that you will see head-hip concussions because a lot of tackles go there. But what you, what you need to ask is relative, per thousand at the head, per thousand at the hip, which one's more likely? And it's very clearly the head. It took a long time to explain that to coaches in the elite game because they also don't quite get their head around this risk issue. And the other point I'd make is there, I think there is a danger that when people target the hip and lower – that they make worse tackles. And so what you'll get is a guy just drop real low, looking at the ground, planted feet, in no position at all to make any adjustments in response to the ball carrier. And that's just a bad tackle. You get your head on the wrong side, you, you get your eyes down, you're not reacting. So you still want to make sure you're teaching good tackles. But good low is considerably safer than high. Even good high, <laughs> but especially bad high. And that's where we come with that green zone as exactly. the ideal place to target. Right. So then my question that I would ask is, as a referee, often we see these tackles that, by law, are high tackles. When ball carriers are close to the ground, they're picking and going for the try line, and it's an absorbing tackle that the defender makes where they kind of wrap the ball carrier and, and take them to ground, and the ball carrier's head is actually hitting their green zone. Yeah, and, the, and to, to go back, the French were the first to make the change and they put into law a complementary law for the ball carrier and literally translated from French, it says ball carrier may not project their head first into contact. So the ball carrier is not allowed to get the ball, put their head down and then go into contact. So they tried to deal with that in that way um, because otherwise, otherwise if the ball carrier is fully bent, there's no access to the tackle zone. There's nowhere f now you put the tackler in a very compromised position. So one of the, I think one of the big challenges in both forms of the game, especially elite, because that's where it's so much power and force in the collision, but also the community game, is what do you do with the ball carrier? So the French have that law. I know that South Africa will have a law around the ball carrier going too low into contact, but then you can't stop the pick and drive. But then, I don't, again, I don't think you need to. You said yourself... Those situations are generally not that unsafe. Where they become unsafe is if you get a tackler who knows the ball carrier is going to go low and they line each other up really low because then you get that same head-to-head -head contact except it's happening 20 centimeters off the ground. And that's just, a head, that's just, a, that's just two elephants <laughs> bashing heads. You know, that's, that's, a, that's not a recipe for anything but disaster. So, so I don't know how they go about officiating that situation. It's going to be really tricky, yeah. I think. I'm not looking forward to it, to be to be honest. And also the, the part about deciding, obviously we wait to hear the actual guidelines and how it's going to be officiated in this country. 
but when you're deciding about what is stern and what isn't, those sort of things. Yeah, one thing on that is if you if you if you make the height the base of the sternum, you don't have to be as precise as you had to be here, because if it's a few centimeters above, it actually doesn't matter. And I know rugby fans want precision and you want clean lines, black and white, and everything must be exactly perfect. But actually. I think one of the upsides of making it low is that you now have a zone to tackle, not a line. And so I, I would hate to go and watch a community game, schoolboys or club, whatever it is, and see 15 penalties for high tackles because some bloke's deciding that that's three centimeters too high versus yeah. below. Like you don't need to do that. I think you can have common sense around, was that on or below? Actually, you know what? It wasn't the head, so just let's play and on. And the point is that you're trying to make the head be below Exactly, and, and so as long zone. as that's so happened, uh, yeah, as long as that's happened, let's crack on, you know, and 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 what you then get is you get coaching advice off that, which is target the belly, hit below the ball, etc. Those will be cues for the ref. If the guy hits below the ball, he, it has to be safe in the normal. Mister Bloke wants to carry the ball around his knees, but like, I I just think there's an opportunity here to change the culture around the 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 burden on a ref to be absolutely precise. That goes away when you lower the height of the tackle because now you say, did he target the torso? Did he target the belly zone? Yes or no? If yes, play on. And I'm not going to be anal about this, but if I see that he didn't target the torso and that he's up near the sternum, and okay, penalty or card, whatever. Yeah, this whole situation is just really challenging, especially since we're right now dealing a lot in hypotheticals. Obviously, when this kind of stuff comes into play we'll actually see how it plays out and i mean we've seen with other laws you know you can't just neck roll into a ruck and obviously that was that was a game plan at some stage but once it was implemented after a few years now people have learned other ways to play without putting people at risk in that form sometimes mostly mostly well then flip our sides to a full contact sport that we don't play that much. American football. Yeah. I mean, that's also full on contact. And I see there more, a lot of technology being developed mm. to deal with it. I mean, yeah. helmets are supposed to get better and better. Yeah. I saw the thing on TikTok the other day where it's, it's called a cowboy collar where it's like a little thin piece of like rubberized plastic, which they put around their neck, which is supposed to help deal with concussions. Yeah, that then, doesn't work. Oh, okay. Those don't work. I know what you mean. It's a cue collar. And it's funny. Those were developed because... There's this theory in that it's really interesting. There's this theory: why don't woodpeckers get concussions? So some some bloke says, "Oh, you know what woodpeckers do is they've got this tongue and they wrap their tongue around the vein and then they actually like pressurize the head and it creates a bit of pressure that protects the brain." It doesn't even, it's not even true to begin with. But anyway, this company makes this collar to do the same thing and it's supposed to compress the jugular vein and in doing that create like some protection around the brain. It doesn't doesn't work. But they love a they love a product and an innovation in <laughs> in the US. But I will say they've got a major concussion issue, like rugby does. And in fact, we didn't really allude to this. A, a big drive for the for the prevention in rugby is the legal fallout that awaits if you don't act. And I mean that was announced when the names of two hundred and ninety odd, three hundred odd former players at both the elite and community level now trying to apply to for a joint lawsuit against World Rugby, English Rugby, Welsh Rugby. That is coming in South Africa. It hasn't come yet, but that bill is in the post, I'm sure of it, because there will be players who come along and say that playing rugby, 
without the necessary protection has not, and I'm not talking helmets, I'm talking laws and, and warnings, has caused them to develop these problems. So it's an imminent threat to the game. American football had that 15 years ago. You know, the first player was a Pittsburgh Steelers guy. There have been documentaries. You may have seen Will Smith was in a movie called Concussion, which was part fiction but <laughs> part true. And so they've got major problems. And, yeah, they, their, main, their main solution to the problem was better helmets. Um, and I was, as I say, I was just in New York, and they really do believe that their helmets are helping because they've got space, you know, they've got this, it's a big helmet and the problem rugby's got with headgear, because that might be your next question, is it's just too thin, 12 millimeters, it's just not enough to decelerate the head, whereas their helmet is, it creates a scaffold and a space that they reckon they've been able to develop to reduce concussion incidents. And they've changed a lot of laws, like those of you who watch um, American football, like the kickoff return now has been moved forward, so it very rarely gets returned. Because they they did the same thing we did. They said, where do our concussions happen? That phase of the game was one of the most dangerous because you had one team running at high speed into another team. Concussions every 20th play. They said, we need to stop that. So they said, move the kickoff, fewer returns, fewer concussions. And it worked. I think just to take a step back, uh, in South Africa, obviously in school sports, I think one of the most common things uh, in rugby and across sports where people – um, know something is wrong is is with concussions, uh, and and people get quite concerned about it because it's around the head, it's a contact. They're worried about the brain, so people are generally quite aware or, or cautious uh, when they talk about it. But in practice, it's not always as well dealt with. So, I think maybe just to help us understand what a concussion actually is doing, what the risks are, and then also with things that. I don't know what you want to call them, sub-concussions, non-concussions that don't get diagnosed or that don't present symptoms, but the long-term effects. Because you're saying, obviously, there are these lawsuits coming, and we know that there are these lawsuits in other countries already. This is a long-term effect that maybe back when they were playing, they would get a concussion. Back then, depending on what the protocols were, it might have been you don't play for a little bit or you just carry on. Um, But the long-term effects, what, what, what are the risks there, particularly in school sport? Yeah, and there's no doubt the conversation has moved from the concussion, the obvious one, you've been knocked out, you're concussed, easy. Okay, not easy maybe afterwards, but we saw it for sure. What's less simple is what happens over the course of a season in which I played 16 matches and I had seven impacts a match. So I'm in the hundreds and what do they do? And and so that's really the crux of the debate right now. Um and we've got these instrumented mouth guards that are being used now in the elite game, which I think in five years' time will be part of the conversation in even the community game. So, like, but, but let's park that for a moment. You asked about a concussion. So concussion is a pretty mysterious injury still. You can have cases where a guy is knocked out on the field to play on a Saturday morning playing for the school, and by Monday they are fine. But in fact, sometimes by Saturday afternoon they're okay. They look fine. They're still concussed but they recover real quickly. Other times you'll have cases where the player plays through no obvious signs, no obvious clinical behaviors, but by the following week, they're still sensitive to light. They're still sensitive to noise. They still have headaches and nausea and so on. And so the way a concussion presents is really complex. And that's why diagnosing them in a clear objective, it's not, it's not like a ACL rupture or a hamstring tear where you can put them under an MRI and say, there's your injury, grade four, three weeks out. Concussion, 
And maybe in two, three generations we'll get to that point. But So for now, concussion is defined as a temporary disturbance in neurological function, which is so vague. Very, very so broad. Vague. Yeah. But that's why, that's why when the concussion is seen, you're looking for everything. You're looking for oculomotor signs like in the eyes. You're looking for balance issues. You're looking for con- cognitive issues like concentration and memory. You're looking for symptoms, looking for clinical signs. It presents in so many different ways depending on where in the brain that transient damage might have occurred. And so the diagnosis is tricky and it's largely subjective. You know, if I, in the elite game, player goes off, they have that screen, that's symptoms, cognitive balance. The symptom endorsement is still the best way to diagnose a concussion, which is not great because, because if a player says I'm fine, the doctor has no way of objectively. Yes. And so the search is on, right? Like the search is on. Let's do eye tracking tests. You can't cheat those, right? Turns out that they're not reliable enough. You can do cognitive challenges, but turns out they aren't reliable enough. You can do salivary mRNAs, but after 68 minutes of running around, even without a head impact, those are messed up. So, so like how do you diagnose something that it presents in such a complex way? That's a massive challenge still. And so it is very much reliant on symptoms. And that's why education is the key bit. You know, it's In the school game, community rugby, there's no HIA, there's no screening, there's no, it's recognize and remove. Yeah. So even more the case there is parents, kids, coaches, match officials have to just be so well educated to look for signs of anything and then act out of cautious, you know, recognize and remove. And I don't think we are. No, we're well not. Well enough educated. No, I'm, and I speak as a match official. Um, you, Everyone who's involved in community rugby in South Africa obviously has to go through box smarts and uh, to some extent that attempts to educate and it throws stats out that can if you aren't aware of them can be quite surprising and and shocking and hopefully would motivate people to become more aware but still if i'm refereeing a club match and there's a, a medic that's been appointed um and there's not really often like match doctors and things for club rugby that just doesn't happen even school rugby there might be one doctor who's dealing with the five fields that are happening on a saturday it's very much on on us a lot of the time. I mean, if I, I I can see a player take a serious knock to the head and go down and they say they're fine, medic says they're fine, and then we have to say, actually, I don't think so. You must you must leave the field. But that's that's more me out of fear that something has happened from seeing that uh, other than any opinion of actually knowing that there is a concussion. So you're going to you're going to say something, but I agree that I don't think we we're, we're there. Well, I, just on that I think like Boxmart does a really good job of educating, but knowledge doesn't mean behavior. That's the big problem because the thing in between, the, 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 the tricky bit that lies between knowledge and behavior are incentives. Yeah. <laughs> and my incentive is to stay on the field because I matter to the team and I want the team to win. So the player wants to stay. The coach wants the player to stay on the field. And then the referee doesn't want to be the person who gets in the way of that. And so that's why even in the elite game, the players don't want to come off. They don't want to stay off, but the the twelve it's now twelve. It used to be ten. That twelve minute period of getting the player off the field, doing an assessment, was so important because it's way easier to keep someone off than to get them off in the first place. And so you say to the player, "Let's just get you, get you off for a screen." And in those twelve minutes, you can diffuse the situation, the pressure. Okay, listen, it's in your best interest and the team's. And it's a culture that has to change. I mean, the thing is, 
if a player goes back on the field and they genuinely concuss, the team's not doing better with them on the field than without, right? So you've got to help coaches understand that and you've got to help coaches understand you know, there's data that every 15 minutes you spend on the field with a concussion delays your recovery time by a few days. I think it's three days. So do you want your player out for three weeks or two? Well, two, get him off. I mean, I, I definitely saw something like that happen to me. I remember a game in grade nine, one of my friends got concussed and none of us realized and he just continued playing and we didn't realize after the game, like, no, this guy is really not okay. So I was going to ask any advice. I mean, it clearly sounds that like at this stage in community rugby without all these resources, we really do need to look after each other, whether it's parents looking after the kids, coaches looking after the team, teammates looking after each other. Right. What would he give us advice for us to look out for, for us to make sure that our brother in arm, our sister in arm doesn't f- de- deal with the long-term side effects of dealing with concussions? Or, or the long-term side effects of it not being picked up straight away, mm. I think. Yeah. yeah and, and across sports. So, the, the, And that's the key, right? It's shared responsibilities. And so you have dozens of eyes on a player, including teammates and opponents. Now, <laughs> an opponent's probably not going to say, listen, you need to go off because that would be great if it happened, but no one would believe you, right? But when your teammates talk about it, and I, and this does happen sometimes, I, I know of one professional player who was at a line-out call and making, he was responsible for calls. And his teammates said, what are you calling? You, you need to go off because you're actually calling completely. That's not even in the book. Off you go. So, okay, easy one there. But it's that shared responsibility. And that shared responsibility starts with prevention. So that's changing culture changing culture around tackles, being safe in the tackle. I said earlier that one of the early paradoxes we recognized was that the tackler is more at risk than the ball carrier. And so you're actually trying to say, I'm responsible not just for your safety as the ball carrier when I'm tackling you, but for my own. So let's take the responsibility. Let me, let me be responsible for my head and yours. Shared responsibility, right? How do we do that? Well, we practice good tackle technique. We practice good tackle disciplines. I think one of the problems in the sport that's developed is the focus on tackles defensive systems and not executions. So now coaches are telling players just based on the box, just rush up in the line. (laughs) doesn't matter what you do when you get there, just rush up. And now what you do is you send guys flying into contact without any semblance of control. Tackle technique is the last thing they're thinking about culture change. So we've got to get that right back to the behaviors that happen in the training fields. Then on the field, it's the same culture of like, let's protect the head. And I'm not going to sit here and say that we must be soft about it. I hate that. I hate when people say games gone soft. Because part of the appeal of rugby is the contact. The people who've played the sport, the thing they love the most about it is that physical contact. It's the thing that binds you in a team. You know, when you talk about brothers and sisters, that's what you're doing. It's contact. If it didn't exist, the sport would be much less valuable. But it's just about, I think, understanding that that doesn't need to put the head at risk. And when I see someone take a blow to the head, I want to check on them, ask, are you okay? Is everything fine? I want to keep a particular eye. That means the coach who's responsible for young people's development and livelihoods. It means the parents. It means the referees. It means everyone needs to be aware. So education matters a great deal. But the thing that's going to make education stick is an acceptance of the culture around protecting the head. Play as hard as you want. But when you see head contact, let's just say, hang on a moment, pull back. So I I know I'm laboring the answer to your question, is recognize what those signs are. 
Is there a player who gets up and looks a little unsteady? That's off. That's not, let's see how you go in the next five minutes. That's done. <laughs> if he doesn't get up, if he lies motionless for five seconds, off. You know, like, it's not a tired player taking a breather. He's off. <laughs> Uh, any any tonic posturing, there's a Boxmart would have all this, and you can find all this stuff online. Just inform yourself as much as you possibly can, and then when in doubt, make the conservative decision in the interest of the player at that moment. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in South Africa in the coming months. But guys, uh, Tim, thank you. Ross, uh, we couldn't have had this chat without you. It's been very insightful. You've really helped us a lot. And I think people are going to gain a lot from what you've had to say in the understanding and the education and knowing why what's coming is coming. Because like you say, there's going to be pushback. There are going to be people unhappy with it. But you just have to swallow the medicine. It's the only way that you can get better. So thank you so much for joining us. Right on. Thanks. It's going to take some getting used to. The new tackle height has created difficulties around the world where it has been applied. But the quicker we get used to it and the quicker we adapt, the better for the community game and in particular, school rugby. Now, Supersport Schools is going to be releasing content throughout the winter season and the rugby season about the new tackle height. And hopefully we all do get used to it as quickly as possible. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Supersport Schools podcast brought to you by Spur. New episodes air every Wednesday at 7 on Supersport Schools Channel 216 and then are available wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you next week. From me and Tim, bye-bye. This has been the Supersport Schools Podcast, bringing you stories of our future stars, powered by Spurs Take Ranchers.